0: It doesn't take too much uh, reading either in that book or just in general experiencing our Christian lives to see that there are various ways and various motivations that we can come to when it comes to a relationship with God. And unfortunately, one of them is, is to be rather selfish. And selfish people are all around us, and so it shouldn't surprise us too much that we run into selfish people within the church as well. And selfish people aren't much fun to be around. They just aren't. But while they're not fun to be around, it can be fun to kind of poke a little fun at selfish people. And as you know, I like to tell a few jokes to kind of lighten the mood at the beginning. So I thought I'd tell some jokes about selfish people, so we can, we can have a good laugh at them. Now, first of all, we've got a lot of good singers in this group. Do you know how to tell if a singer is selfish? You can do so just by listening to them warm up. Me, 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 me. <laughs> How does the self-centered person screw in a light bulb? They hold the light bulb in the socket and wait for the world to revolve around them. Okay? Now in high school, uh, I haven't told you much about my earlier years, but in high school, I dated a really selfish girl. She worked in a bakery. She was so needy, I ran out of dough. Uh, she sure knew how to get a rise out of me. Uh, oh, okay, okay. I, I, I knew that that particular joke was only half baked. <laughs> but maybe I should stop telling jokes on others. After all, I have my own issues. Um, like when I go to the gym, there's a sauna. I don't like a good sauna, but I, I don't like to use it unless I can have it all to myself. That's right, I have selfish steam issues. Anyone out there yet begging that I'll stop with the jokes on selfishness? Yeah, I saw at least one hand. Okay, just one more. Well, on second thought, I think I'll keep it to myself. (laughs) Whether groans or guffaws or very polite chuckles, thank you, I appreciate that. The foolishness of being selfish makes us smile a bit when we see that error in other people, but selfishness can, it can distort a person's perspective enough that they end up doing some pretty funny things, things that we can laugh at. However, when we see that self-centeredness in ourselves, when we uh, reflect on our own behaviors and we see that in our own spirits, we're... Much less likely to laugh them off, especially when we realize that many Christians behave selfishly when it comes to their relationship with God. How often do we come to a choice in life between what God wants and what we want? And what happens when those things are in tension with one another? What will be our choice? If we want to truly experience God, We'll need to make the choice. We must determine to be God-directed and be God-centered. Gotta to determine to be God-directed and God-centered. And sometimes it's it's not so easy to determine when our motivations are self-centered or God-centered. So I'd like to just kind of as an exercise with you run through a few biblical scenarios and practice our discernment skills. Okay? So this is going to be a little audience participation here. In the following situations i want you to tell me what you think is a self-centered action and which is a god centered action first it makes sense to start off in the bible at the very beginning so genesis 2 starting at verse 16 and then into chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 we get this picture of adam and eve in the garden a beautiful garden where they could eat anything they could have anything they possibly want except god told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Eve sought for and thought to herself, hmm, that looks pretty good for gaining wisdom. And she ate it, and she gave some to Adam, and he also ate it. Now, having wisdom isn't such a bad thing, knowledge of good and evil, right? So was her action selfish, or God-centric? What do you think? Selfish. Selfish. Why, why was it selfish? Because God already told her not to eat of that. Yeah. For him not to eat of that. She had the wisdom she needed. She had the wisdom she needed, and the relationship with God that that hopefully she she could have trusted. Them. And Adam too. Adam does not get yes. off the hook just because <laughs> she's first. So the Bible says he he was right there with her, you so she plucked it, jumped, gave it to him. So yeah. All right. Second. All right. So Adam, Adam and Eve selfish decision, not God's. All right. Second, Potiphar's wife. Potiphar, in Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife begged daily for Joseph to have an affair with her. And he told her that he couldn't do such a thing because it would be a sin, not just in their relationship, but a, a sin against God. So she arranged a situation that would trap him and try to coerce him into this relationship that she was seeking. Seeing no other option, Joseph flees the room when she's kind of attractive, and subsequently he goes to prison rather than giving in to temptation. So is Joseph's action selfish or God-centered? God-centered. God-centered. Because he could have had his fun with her and got away with it, probably. Right? Yeah. And as far as we know, the situation that she set up was between just the two of them, and he could have thought, who's going to find out? But he knew that, that God, and he knew. And so he made the decision that was God's All All right, third and last for, for this uh, this little interaction that we're having here. God promised to give the land of the Canaanites to Israel. So we find in Numbers 13 and 14 that Moses, an individual that we spent some time focusing on and, and will in this book experiencing God. Moses sends 12 men into the Promised Land to explore it and to bring back a report. Now the land promised to be terrific for growing crops and providing for all their needs, but the problem was that the people that lived there already who inhabited that land were really intimidating in their size and their strength. So 10 of the spies, 10 of the 12, gave the report that said, you know what? You can't attack these people, they're way, stronger than we are. But the other two, Caleb and Joshua, they said, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. Don't be terrified or afraid. Which approach to the task at hand was self-centered and which one was God-centered? The ten or the two? Which one, which, let's start with self-centered. Which one was more self-centered, the ten or the two? The ten. Because what were they they concerned about? Myself. And they were, thinking, they, were big. they were looking at themselves, and they were looking at the challenge before them. and they were saying, no way can we beat these guys. All right, And then the two, Joshua and Caleb, they were gutsy centered because they specifically called out and said, hey, if God is pleased with us, if he's with us, then we'll be able to do what he's calling us to do. You see, it's not the seriousness of the task or the people involved, or the results, even, really, because, you know, Joshua, or, or, yeah, Joseph gets thrown in jail as a result of the decision he makes. It's not even the the results of that decision that ultimately determine whether an action is selfish or not. It's whether or not, in that moment, we're discerning God's purposes and actions in our lives. The important key to discernment and experiencing God's presence is that we must focus our lives on God's purposes and not our own plans we must see things from God's perspective rather than our own limited human perspective when God starts to do something in the world right some action big or small that fits in with his larger kingdom purposes he takes the initiative to come and to talk to somebody to give them a little nudge a call right? sometimes Often, most of the time, it's not going to be an audible voice, although some of you in this fellowship have had that experience. Right? Sometimes it's just going to be something you sense in your spirit. You, you feel like you're called in a certain direction. And this is the incredible thing about God, because even though God could easily achieve his work in this world through his miraculous powers, He's god all. instead God chooses to involve people in accomplishing his work, people like you and me. So here's some more biblical scenarios. And each time, in these situations, I want you to tell me if you if you think you know what God is about to do. Okay, so this isn't exactly Bible trivia, but this is kind of a, the reason I'm doing this is as, as a reminder that if, this isn't just coming from one portion of the scripture, it's throughout the Bible, right? So in Genesis chapter six, verses 11 through 14, what was God about to do when he came to Noah and asked him to build an ark? Here's, here's that passage. It reads, Now the earth was corrupt, in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy them, both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. So what was God about to do? Send the flood. He was about to send a flood, right? But not like right away. Not next week. It was gonna take some time. And Noah was being asked to do what? Build a humongous ark, right? Be weird. Nobody be be weird. weird. Nobody else is building an ark. Right, he was asked to be do something strange, to be called out to do. I, I'm i I'm fairly sure that this concept of an ark did not did not exist before God calling. Him. So I'm sure Noah, maybe Noah's first response is, "What's an ark? Yeah, like what are you talking about?" All right, how about how about in Ezekiel? We read this passage earlier in the service. What was God going to do through Ezekiel when he called him? In Ezekiel 2, verses 1 through 6, you've got it there in your bulletin, but I'll, I'll remind you. It says, He said to me, Son of man, stand upon your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. That people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, This is what the sovereign word says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are God's the people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So, what was God about to do? What was God about to do with this evil? Does that sound like a fun assignment? No, it doesn't sound like a fun assignment. It's not like it's, it's not even really like Jonah's assignment, right? Where Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to repent, but they did. You know, that God moved powerfully through him. And even though Jonah was upset about that, it would, it would have been exciting to see God move in that way. But here, here's Ezekiel. And he's basically setting up and says, you know what? They're a really rebellious nation. They're not listening to me. They're not going to listen to you. But I want you to say, thus saith the Lord. So they'll be kind of without excuse. So he's getting ready to use Ezekiel to be his voice of judgment to the nation and to its leadership. Eventually leading to the conquering of Israel in 586 BC and its people going into exile in Babylon. Not a great assignment, if you ask me. All right, last one. How about Acts 9, 1 through 16? That's the, the passage that Randy read about Saul's conversion. Saul becoming Paul. Meanwhile, Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. He went to the high priest. He asks for letters, all right? Gives him the authority, go into Damascus, round up those that are called the way, all right? That was the first name for that that Christian uh, group. And as he's on his way to Damascus, the Lord knocks him off his horse. Literally knocks him off his high horse. He's on the ground. He's called and struck He's told what to do next, all right, to go into town and seek out a disciple named Ananias. The Lord calls to Ananias and kind of lets Ananias in on this plan that that God is doing with with Saul. And Ananias at first says, Lord, you know what? I've heard the reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name." But the Lord says to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So what was God about to do when he came to Saul, later named Paul, on that road to Damascus? What was God's plan? What is he saying? I'm going to use Saul to do what to, reach the Gentiles. <laughs> to preach to the Gentiles, to reach out to the Gentiles, to let them know that they are part of God's plan as well as the Jewish people, and thus kind of take the gospel to the world. So what do we learn from all this, all right? Is this just kind of happy Bible quiz time? No, I don't think so. I think we learned that there really wasn't anything that Noah or Ezekiel or Saul had to do in order to be used by God. They're kind of the recipients of God's plan, and, and they respond either by accepting it or rejecting it. Did God have, did they actually, did they have any idea what God was calling them to, what God was up to in that moment, do you think? No. No, oh, I don't think so. No. I don't think they had any idea. So we learn this from the Bible time and time again. The discernment, if we're trying to figure out which way to go, where God is calling us, the discernment should be focused on listening to what God is about to do. What is God about to do? What's What's the next thing? We don't sit down and dream what we want to do for God. And then call God in to help us accomplish whatever we dreamed up. The pattern in Scripture is that we submit ourselves to God. We submit ourselves to God. And then we wait until God shows us what He's about to do, or we watch and see what God is doing around us and join with Him in what He's already doing. In this, we are submitting ourselves to God's plans, not trying to force upon the Lord our plans. In other words, our focus needs to be on following God's ways. That discernment is ultimately about perceiving what God is doing around us and joining God in that work. Now, this was my approach, for better or worse, when I first came here to Desert Springs. I asked myself, what is the Lord already doing amongst these people? How can I encourage them to use their gifts and to be the best version of themselves right now? Not, not at some point in the future, but right now. Where do we start? I attempted to discern these first steps through meeting with you and talking with you, praying and listening and seeking, all the while remaining in the Word of God for grounding and for purpose. And this is what led us to our partnership with CDF in a more significant way. And our present study as well and experiencing God. None of this was my idea. I didn't have this streamed up in January or February. It was just kind of looking to see where God was already working and stepping into that. And I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope you're encouraged by that. That's not that it doesn't hit you as like, oh man, he's just making this up as he does. But that but then it's it's not just me preaching something, but hopefully it's us living into this these concepts together that if we're going to be in the church God is calling us to be right you hear that even in that description if we're going to be the church God is calling us to be then we have to be listening to God and confident that we're able to discern when it's God and when it's not so i just tried to listen well to the spirit and to see what God was doing among you Discuss it with leadership, bounce it off of them and say, here's what I think we should do next. And that's led us to this point. But what happens when people, what happens to people when they just simply follow their own ways? When they don't really consider God? What if we determined that we were going to build Desert Springs as a church? We we're going to build the church upon our vision of what a successful ministry is. I mean we could look to other ministries perhaps, or or we could look to some version of Desert Springs in the past and try to recapture something, some previous experience that we've had as a church family. How would that go for us? How has that gone for us? It has not gone. So let's listen to the following passage in Psalm eighty one, verses ten through twelve. God is speaking in the psalm, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. But my people will not listen to me. Israel will not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. What had God already done for the people of Israel? He's brought them out of slavery. He's provided manna in the desert for them, and quail as well. He's, he's literally filled with their mouths. Right? So it's not just a figurative or poetic sort of thing, but I think he's doing that as well. And what does he promise to his people? Was it just, I'm going to get you out of slavery and then you figure it out? No, I'm going to lead you into a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay. He had given them Freedom and an opportunity to serve Him completely, blessing them with their own land and establishing them as a special chosen nation among all the peoples of the earth. But the people would not listen to Him. They didn't listen very well. They did not submit. And so the Lord gave them over to their own stubborn hearts. In other words, they lived by the consequences of their own sin, and that generation, that initial generation, died in the desert as a result and what was that great sin? What was that great sin? Would we have even recognized it as a sin? I'm not sure. Really. I'm not sure if we had been there because it wasn't any great wickedness. right? It wasn't any great moral failing that you, could, you and I, maybe you could picture something. If I say some great wickedness, we've got this picture of what that looks like. It wasn't a lack of religious activity. Nope, their great sin is that they wanted to determine their own path. They wanted to be self-sufficient, not dependent on God. Convinced of their own self-sufficiency, they took their stubbornness literally to the grave. That was their great sin. You know what, folks? We live in a culture that sort of esteems their great sin. Yeah. Right? And so so sometimes we are, we're swimming in this water, we're breathing this air, we're moving in this culture, and we don't even realize the degree to which we've been affected by it. To see that, that we give God lip service, but we're not really dependent on it not in the way that's going to allow us to experience God to move in a powerful way amongst us. And as a result, the nation of Israel, this this generation of Israel, they died on the doorstep of promise. They died on the doorstep of promise. That is tragic. They were unwilling to live into the grace that God was giving them, just giving them, Natural consequences for our foolish actions or our stubborn refusal to act when God is calling us to do so, that's a real thing. God's respect for us, His love and His grace allows for our responsibility rather than circumventing it. And when we experience those natural consequences for foolish actions or lack of action, when we feel like God is calling us to do something, Giving those consequences, experiencing those consequences, it produces maturity and allows us to grow in wisdom if we humble ourselves and repent and say, you know what, God? I messed up. I'm going to do it better next time. I'm going to listen next time. Listen to God's heart for us in verses 13 and 14 of that, that same psalm that I just read a, a portion of, Psalm 81. In verses 13 and 14, God says, if my people would but listen to me, if Israel would follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue all their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. This is similar to God's promise in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. It's probably a familiar passage to many where God says to the Israelites, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. When we are weighed down under the consequences of our own actions or the repercussions of living a life that's just simply not in tune with God's best for us in humble obedience, God isn't gleefully watching from heaven our suffering and our confusion and our lack of direction. Remember, God pursues us in loving relationship. The Father's heart is that we would be in right relationship with Him. Healing and wholeness are what God wants for us. This is God's desire, but can only be realized when our hearts become God centered and not self centered. So if we want peace and joy and hope, we adjust our lives to God, and he can do through us what he wants to do. The beautiful thing about God's love is that he takes the initiative and speaks to us. This is a key point. God takes the initiative and speaks to his people. He's speaking speaking right now. He's speaking in your lives. I know he's active in your life. Because you're a son, you're a daughter, and God loves you. And so he's doing things all around you all the time. Black and, me and King illustrate this point well in their book *Experiencing God* by telling the story of George Mueller. Have, have you guys have you seen the story of George Mueller in your reading yet? George Mueller is he was a pastor in England during the 19th century, and he was concerned, looking around at his culture and at the church, that God's people had become very discouraged. They were no longer looking for God to do anything unusual. It was pretty melt toast sort of. Thing. They no longer trusted God to answer prayers. They had so little faith in the first place. So God began to lead George to pray. George's prayers were for God to lead him to a work that could only be explained as an act of God. George wanted the people to learn that, that their God was a faithful prayer answering God. And he came upon that verse in Psalm 81.10 that we read today, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. God began to lead him into a walk of faith that became an outstanding testimony to all who hear of his story. When George felt led by God to do some work, he prayed for resources that were needed, he prayed for the resources that were needed. And then what did he do? Did he buy a billboard and put it up and said, This is what I need, run an ad in the paper? He didn't tell anyone. That's what he did. He prayed about it privately and he didn't tell anyone. He wanted all to know that God had provided for the need only an answer to prayer and faith. Not through a cunning marketing campaign, not through harassing members of the church until they gave more, but as an answer to prayer. During his ministry in Bristol, George started with, uh, he started the Scriptural Knowledge Institute for distribution, Distribution of Scripture, and religious education. That was one of the things and he got going. He also began an orphanage. And at the time of his death, George Mueller had been used by God to build four orphan homes that housed over 2,000 children. Over 10,000 children had been provided for through those orphanages. He distributed over $8 million through the ministries that he stewarded. All money that had been given to him in answer to prayer. When he died at age 93, his worldly possessions were valued at a grand total of $800. How did he know and do the will of God? How was it that God took the initiative and spoke to George? Well, listen to this statement from George Mueller himself. He said, I never remember a period that I ever sincerely and patiently sought to know the will of God by the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Through the instrumentality of the Word of God, but that I have always been directed rightly. But if honesty of heart and uprightness before God were lacking, or if I did not patiently wait upon God for instruction, or if I preferred the counsel of my fellow men to the declarations of the Word of God, I made great mistakes. So, what helped George Mueller know God's will? Three things. He sincerely sought God's direction. He waited on God until he had a word for God, felt confident about it, and then he looked to the Holy Spirit to teach him through the word, the Bible. And he also knew things that led him to make mistakes, which were lacking in honesty of heart, being insincere, lacking integrity, lacking an uh, an upright life in Christ, entertaining sinful thoughts, deeds, and attitudes. Being too impatient to wait for God, saying, "All right, I felt called, by God called me to do this. I've given you a period of time. Now I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go charge out and do it." And then preferring the counsel of men or the declaration of Scripture. So, how do we know that the Lord will speak to us? All right, it's great, George Mueller, right? All those years ago, people in Scripture—that's wonderful. How do we know God's going to speak to us? How do I know God's going to speak to me? Listen to what Jesus says in the following passages. John 14, 26. But the counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. John 16, verses 13 and 14. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but only speak what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come you'll bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you so God promises to make himself known to us to reveal his thoughts to show us what he will do by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives he guides us teaches us encourages us leading us as the good shepherd in the image of Jesus Christ that we explore here in desert springs back I want to close out our time by reminding us of the principles we've learned from John chapter 10 and how we discern the voice of Jesus coming. In John 10 verses 2 and 4 we read, The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. But He has brought out all of His own, He goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow, because they know His voice. And later in John 10, 14, Jesus states, I am the Good Shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. You see, the key to knowing God's voice is through nurturing that love relationship. There's no formula, there's no formula to knowing God's voice, no step-by-step application that applies to everyone at all times and all places, because knowing his voice comes as the result of intimate and loving relationship with him. Your relationship to God is gonna look different than my relationship to God, because you're a different individual than I am. God doesn't want us following formulas and trying to discern his will that way. He wants a loving and intimate relationship with you and with me. He wants us to depend on Him alone. So hearing God has nothing to do with a method or a formula. but has everything to do with relationship. So ultimately, what we come down to is the issue of, who is truly the Lord of our lives? Who is truly the Lord of our lives? And the issue of Lordship is this control. We show God He has control of our lives by listening and obeying the smaller promptings, to call a friend, to reach out to a neighbor, but whatever the Lord lays on our hearts. If we want to be used by God for great things, we need to be faithful to Him in the small things. To experience a dynamic relationship with God, we therefore need to be looking to God, listening for his voice and seeing where he is at work. After seeing where God is working then, we adjust our lives to what he wants and humbly serve God as servants to his will for his purposes in this world. Will. will you pray for me? God, we started out. Well, we started out by making some jokes about being selfish, but it's no laughing matter. Especially when we see that behavior in ourselves. When we see that maybe the selfishness isn't overwhelming, but we place conditions upon our relationship with you and say, well, God, you can tell me what to do unless it has to do with this, this, or this. Or this part of my life. Or you couldn't possibly be calling me to do X, Y, or Z." Lord, when we we limit what you might be saying to us, we run the risk of missing your voice and what you're calling us to. And Lord, the truth of the matter is when we lack obedience, it's not because we have an obedience problem, it's because we have a love problem. We just simply don't believe that you love us enough to, to lead us and guide us into things that will be for our good. Help us not to shrink back from your love. Help us not to be the type of individuals whose walk does not match our talk. The world has plenty of these people. What it needs is you. And the world needs to see you moving in and through us. That would be our hope, Jesus.